Hey there, welcome to We've Been Had, a song-by-song -song walk through the songs of Uncle Tupelo, at least during the first season. Um, I am Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And uh, we're coming to you here from under the flight paths of MSP International Airport. Um, this is an exciting show. It's, it's anodyne time. I, I think I would say that it's time for the, the best Uncle Tupelo album. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to I'd, speak for you. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of debate about that. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's debate about it. There's going to be somebody. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, you know, I, I always thought this was the best. Um, if we pull a still field gun here and revise our opinions downward, I, I'm going to be bummed. Um, songs we're covering today are Slate, Acuff Rose, and The Long Cut. But if you're down, I thought before we get into songs, um, you know, there's just kind of some background to set for the album. Yeah, and maybe we could also discuss like our favorite Street Hawk episodes. Street Hawk? You don't remember Street Hawk? I don't. The like Knight Rider knockoff with the motorcycle? Oh, well, I, I'm an accept no substitutes man with Knight Rider. Which is probably also a cable when you're growing up. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the anodyne background. So the album recorded in 1983, that's not right, 1993, um, the band had left Rockville because Rockville was screwing him over, and Gary Loris managed to help, uh, Gary Loris of the Jayhawks managed to help broker a deal to Sire Records. Little known fact, Keith once fixed Gary Loris's uh, pedal at a uh, Golden Smog show. That's true, but unfortunately now we're in a state of beef. Well, <laughs> you're in a state of beef with the the larger Jayhawks apparatus. Yeah, with whoever yeah. runs the Jayhawks Twitter account. Um, I uh, so the thing that hits me, and I will probably get into this when we get into the songs too. But like, I never was aware of this. You know, I, I wasn't aware as strongly back in the day. But like looking back now, you know, Uncle Duplo, three albums on on an indie, and then they go major and then implode. And like that pattern, just think about how the 80s and early 90s are just like this graveyard of bands who did great stuff on indies and then went major and, you know, either imploded right away or if they're the replacements, like crawled behind a shed and kind of died. Yeah, do you count Who's Screw Do in that, in oh, that list? Definitely. I mean, they're one of the, I think they're one of the charter charter members. Yeah, I mean, because it, it, it flip your wig, is that a... Uh... No. Warehouse? Warehouse and Candy Apple Gray are the two okay. the two majors and um, you know, of those two, one is a good album. <laughs> but uh, I, I assume you mean warehouse. Yeah, yeah. I uh, yes. Um anyway, so big lineup changes here. Mike Hydorn is gone, replaced for a little while by Bill Belzer like for a tour, and then he was asked to leave, and I think we'll get into that maybe, but Ken Coomer comes in uh, to record. Brian Henneman was never fully part of the band, but we've talked about him like every episode. Now he's just gone, and his replacement as guitar tech immediately got promoted to playing bass and utility guitar as John Stirat, the, the Rasputin of, of the band. And a guy, Max Johnston, is there as a multi-instrumentalist, which seems like a good gig if you can get it. Just be like... Yeah, especially if you're going to get attached to a Jeff Tweedy project. Like, yeah. multi-instrumentalist is going gonna, is gonna to get you paid. It occurred to me, I was thinking about this, no one disputes that this is an Uncle Tupelo album. 
But if you saw them performing like in this era, 60% of what you're seeing on stage is like non-original members of the band. Yeah. It's it's hard though because like Uncle Tupelo started as a three piece and yeah. you've got I, I just I think the two driving forces. Well, I think Mike Heidorn is an awesome drummer for the style that he plays. I just don't I don't think fans really really think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it, it did occur to me if you wanted to just be a contrarian dick, you could claim that well, this lineup no, this isn't really Uncle Tupelo. This is just like, Will, a, Wilco AM plus J Ferrar. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Drop some algebra on it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I can just see the notation. Anyway, yeah, album recorded at Cedar Creek Studio in Austin, Texas. The guy named Brian Paulson producing. Uh, he comes back for Sunvolt. We've talked about this a couple of times. I have checked it out. It's reported universally that this whole fucking album was recorded live in studio, no overdubs, no single takes, and I just I find that fucking terrifying that they were that they did that. Amazing, yeah. It it, it doesn't even seem possible to me just knowing what a perfectionist Jay Ferrar is that, right. that that would ever happen. You know, I'm at this point where like I accept that as reported, but I'm still. I don't know if I can accept that just as a on its face fact. I mean, it probably is. It's impressive, even if it was, even if there were just a couple overdubs, right, like that if, would be impressive. Yeah, there's there'd be no shame in it if they went back in and just touched a thing up. I don't know. Oh, anything, anything else before we? Yeah, I mean, as I as I ref, reflect on it, like 1993 is the, the year I graduated from high school, and I. You know, it's it's interesting for me to think about it in terms of like when the record came out and the yeah. music that I was listening to. Like I was sort of oscillating between classic rock and uh, kind of the the first wave alternative. Yeah. At that point, because I think you know, like kind of the Nirvana, Pearl Jam type music was really starting to get popular. Yeah. And and just how though this awesome record was recorded. But it's kind of like it was recorded and then put away in a chest for a few years until yeah. I discovered it. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Like, it's, same, like, I was not on board when this came out, and it drives me a little nuts to know that I could have been. Yeah, and now it, it's, it's strange because I wasn't that far away, right? Because yeah. I had just, I remember going to see Soul Asylum play uh, at what was then Floatwright Park in <laughs> uh, uh, Somerset, Wisconsin. I don't remember. I don't know what they're calling it now, but uh, it's a big outdoor music festival, and you know, like members of Soul Asylum were kind of tangentially associated with yeah. Uncle Tupelo. So I, I just never made that link. Yeah, you you were taking a few steps, but yeah, I mean, it's weird to me. Like later in the summer of '93, I guess I heard our friend Grant, you know playing graveyard shift on a guitar and like i didn't know what it was at that point i'm just like what the fuck is that riff you're playing um you know and if i had just had a conversation with him about that then i could have maybe caught this i don't know it's kind of sad if i think back like in 1993 this the album i remember being most excited for that year was zuropa yeah and like or maybe that was Maybe it was 92. I don't know. But like, the, to me, like, that's where I was at then. And like, it's weird 
I don't know. It's a weird left turn. I don't know if it was 93 or 94 where I sadly first saw the Rolling Stones on the Voodoo Lounge <laughs> tour. Yeah. Which is not like peak era Stones. Like that is, That's not the good vintage. <laughs> it's not even like when they had figured out that like these new albums were not like they should just not play. Yeah, they're, they're still like making an attempt to walk you through the hot new material. Love is strong. Oh, all right. Well, want to get into sleep? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay, so slate. Um, fuck. You know, like I'm always, I've always been praising the sequencing, and here too. Like I love the way this album starts off slow and then just gains steam. You know, like this song's kind of stately. I think. Yeah, I like the a couple things that that I like. Number one, I had a bootleg that I bought at uh, at the Or okay. or Folk Joe Copas. I believe that's where the uh, Gary Loris pedal fix went down. I believe that was actually Garage Door. Shit, you're right. Yeah, yeah. It's weird because they're, they're for people that aren't from Minneapolis. They were on the same street, so you know, one is across from the CC Club where the replacements would hang out, and the other is a little farther down Lindale. But uh, but yeah, so I bought this bootleg, this Uncle Tupelo bootleg, which I was very excited about. Yeah. Uh, but it had like these made up track names. Okay. And I mean, this thing was awesome because it was like, I don't know what, it, whatever I paid for it, 14 bucks or something. And it was clearly a CD that had been burned from another CD, right? Yes. And the, the first track was called Halls of Shame. Which is clearly like somebody took one listen to it like, oh, this song must be called Halls of Shame. Yeah. That would be a good song title. And actually, that would have been a good title for this show. Yeah, but they they like this is all the songs. I just like I I've always I I love that. I just anytime you get like the lazy bootlegs, it's always good. It's like no effort was put into this to any level of this production. Like there's no liner notes. There's it. What more do you need? Yeah, I I feel like I feel like. for a while, I was watching this show, Shameless. Yeah. And there's a bit on that show, the U.S. version of that show, where they grift a bunch of rich kids by telling them that there's a Wilco secret show, and they charge them for parking. <laughs> <laughs> like, right on. I, I feel like that's kind of it's tangential to what happened to me in the bootleg industry. Like, was it? It was, uh, I assume it was like a live show. Yeah, it's it fine. Good? The quality's fine. Yeah. It just there's no no effort made to to like convince you that they didn't just mass produce these things yeah fair enough with uh with slate as it comes in i kind of love how they start out fiddle right there up front just kind of steadily letting you know like oh yeah we got this now we got we added a fiddler we multi-instrumentalist yes we got it it kind of reminds me of like how neil young uses the harmonica as a sound effect yeah like (laughs) (laughs) yeah like it's sort of it, it like that fiddle is there in the background kind yeah, of Yeah, but it's not like carrying a melody. Right. Totally. Just the sound of it, like I I should do more background research into what else Brian Paulson has done outside of his J Ferrar work. But uh, you know, this just everything here, like it comes in sounding great. It the record sounds like it sounds professionally produced in a way that the first two records sure as hell didn't. And you know, it it. I, I mean, after spending months raving about the production of March, like this one 
sounds at least as good. You know, just fat. You can hear everything. The acoustic guitar is big. Yeah, I wanted to uh, I wanted to dip into your your English uh, your English bachelor's knowledge to to ask you about a lyric. What do you got? So there's this uh, this line where they say, "Farcical hair appears as a blindside. Clean the slate." The farcical hair. I was just trying to puzzle that out today, and I assume it's like he's irritated by someone's bad haircut. And so I was trying to like I so I spent uh, too much time trying to run this down and yeah. zero success. But interesting, like if you. Google farcical hair, (laughs) like you get a lot of definitions of the word farcical. And one of the definitions is includes, and a lot of them have this, like, like these examples, like this is like resembling farce, the wild farcical exuberance of a clown. And then it says ludicrous green hair. (laughs) So like, and they have that same pattern, like the clown and then that green hair. And I wonder if that's just like, that's where he pulled it out of. Like, I wonder. You know, I'm like total, total speculation, no basis in, in reality here, but like I've always taken this song just to be another like Jay Farrar complaining about how much working sucks. I actually wonder if this song isn't like a very deeply coded fuck you to Rockville Records. Uh, you know, because he says, like, what the hell were we thinking? It's pretty easy to imagine someone who's three years into the music industry calling the music industry the halls of shame. Uh, farcical hair appears. Maybe someone at Rockville had a shitty haircut. They got blindsided. They turn and have a clean slate on a new record label. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a good... Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm flinging it, bullshit here. No, it, but... makes, it makes a lot of sense. It, it It's kind of... I guess when you think about it, at, in that vein, the kind of bury the hatchets we find is is, yeah. is sort of cutting. I, I mean, like you kind of imagine Farrar recording this and then just like rubbing his hands and being like, "In thirty years, they're gonna figure out what I said." It's like you just picture Jay Farrar like a like a big desk doing the Mister Burns like excellent. <laughs> the trap is laid. I don't know. I mean, like, I've never extracted this much meaning from this song before, but that's that's what it seems to me. I mean, my my note here, just to myself, is just, yep, Jay's singing about how much it sucks to work, because that's basically all, all I ever got from this before. But I love his delivery when he says, what the hell were we thinking? Like, that's just, that's been one of my, has always been one of my favorite Jay Farrar deliveries. In fact, my note with that, uh, another sidestep into bringing TV into this. You know, we've, we've both been talking offline about how we are watching, we're doing like Deadwood catch-ups. And I was watching it and I realized Dan Doherty, the, like the barman henchman yeah. at the gym, that's what you'd expect Jay Farrar to look like. Yeah, I think so. That's what that voice should be coming out of. Um, More so than, you know, like what he actually looks like. Exactly. But uh, I just... If we're talking about good line deliveries, I needed to throw that in there. Also talking voices. Um, so like one of the things with this album is this is like the arrival of the mature Jeff Tweedy singing voice. And the harmonies here on the chorus is like the first time it kind of pokes its head out. And yeah, you know, we'll we'll get into that a lot more later. But the instrumentation on this one is also kind of weird. 
they, there are drums there, but they're super minimal. You know, like like knowing what Coomer is going to be doing in a few songs, it's interesting to me that they've got him on such a tight leash here. And it sounds like Tweedy's playing a fretless bass, which I don't think, you know, I, I think that's the only time I've ever heard him do that, if that's what he's doing. So as a non-bass player, what does a fretless bass do for you? Um, you can, you can kind of smooth your notes around, you know, like, like on a, on a usual electric bass, the frets make each note like a distinct thing. So, you know, it's E to F is like a clean thing. Uh, fretless bass is like an orchestral instrument. And so you, your fingers can move all the way through. Um, and so like, if you listen to like the bass part in this song, there's a bunch of parts where it's like, and it just it's easier to do that kind of smooth loop on a fretless. I mean, nobody plays them unless they're like trying to show off because they're a giant pain in the ass. You know, like since you don't have a fret to put you on the note you want, you've got to like have your finger in the exact right spot. And it's like playing the trombone or something. You got to yeah. just know where the where the position is. Yeah, totally. I mean, and like it's funny to me that like I'm talking about it like it's this impossible thing, but like everyone who plays any orchestral instrument, that's just what they do. But they're fuck them. <laughs> they're the enemy. Just a bunch of cake eaters. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I don't know. It's this this I just the song is such a nice, like chill entry into the album. And I, I love the way it ends with this like unresolved chord progression um you know it sounds like there should be another note there and there isn't and that kind of leads nicely into the next song yeah it's i mean this album is just beautifully sequenced like it yeah. it just is a it's a work of art in terms of of how you put a how you put a record together yeah you know, and we've speculated before like was it them making these decisions was it the producers at this point and, you know, and I listening back to old episodes, I can hear, you know, early on, like we we didn't really come down one way or the other. But if you look at it, like the common element on all of these really well sequenced albums with different producers is Tweedy and Farrar, so they must be the ones doing it. Like it, it's that consistent. And I and I feel like we're we're kind of seeing them grow from trying to be Dinosaur Junior to trying to be. So maybe Dinosaur Jr. to Woody Guthrie to kind of finding their own, finding their own path on this album. Yeah, that, well, but but that's part of what I love with the sequencing is this fake out. Like you would hear this and think like, oh, they're doing March again, you know, and like and and great, you know, and like they keep that up for a couple of songs before they sneak up and kick you in the balls. Yeah, and they do. The interesting thing is though, they don't kick you in the balls with the off on like yeah. kind of stuff way they used to yeah in their early days you know they they have this like this is our formula for ass kicking yeah you know, we do you know quiet loud quiet yeah which is actually the pixies but um <laughs> yeah theirs is more like on off on right. but yeah i know what you mean but... it, it's just uh it's it's cool to see a like a band mature that much in in what is a real a relatively short time frame yeah no kidding it's it's nuts. Well, and that, you know, I mean, like, I, we'll talk about this more, too, with Tweedy's singing voice. But I don't know. Just, like, he sounds like he's twice as old and, like, has so much more control over what he's doing with his voice. And, like, it's crazy how far that moved in four years. 
<sighs> yeah, on a personal level, this this song in particular, you know, so we were, we talked about like where we were at '93. So for me, '96 is when I went all in on this album, um, and this just this makes me think of living alone out in Morris, Minnesota, and like listening to this a ton. I'm trying to teach myself how to cook and trying to teach myself like okay i'm gonna make music like this this album is so good like i have to that's just it's just like wrapped the music is wrapped tightly up in, in memories for me like i can i can still taste really badly made stir fry <laughs> just hearing it it's cool though how that that happens sometimes but not all the time if that makes sense yeah like there are just certain moments that you can tag to certain albums yeah and I think the fact that, at least for me, you can't do that for every album is what makes it kind of neat. Is yeah. That you, you've got just a, a handful of instances where you can be like, yep, I, you know, like I think about like the, uh, like the Mermaid Avenue album or Summer Teeth. And I think about, you know, like when we were living in that apartment on Beard Avenue. Yeah. And like that just encompasses that era of my life perfectly. Totally. Like, the, like those two albums were kind of the the soundtrack to that yeah. period of my life. That's such a cool thing. And it's weird that like, it doesn't really, you're not aware of it as it happens, you know, like if, at least for me, when music gets coded to a time in my life, I'm not like in that moment thinking like, Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be thinking of this as my Bowie years. Uh, you know, but then later on you look back and you're like, Jesus, I really listened to black star over and over and over. Yeah. I mean, and the lesson there is that like, if you know, you're going to die, like record a really kick ass <laughs> record. Right. <laughs> leave people with something to code the time to yeah the only other note i've got for this is just like a repetition of being shocked that this is no overdubs and single take because it again like march it just flows and builds perfectly if they assembled this song together out of overdubs it would be well put together and like a song to be really proud of uh, doing it without on the first take, that's just fucking astonishing. I guess I didn't know it was first take. That's the claim anyway. So, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm going to put an asterisk next to that. Well, no, I'm just, I mean, I'll, I'll keep, I'll hold steady saying they claim it. I mean, that's, it doesn't even seem possible to me, but maybe that's, that's just, I mean, the no overdubs, it seems impossible. Yeah. Like, doing it all one take and just being like, okay, good, cut, print. I mean, like, I guess, so the argument against it being a miracle is you go and see a show and, you know, the band plays, you know, whoever you're seeing, like, they play through the song all the way through. You're basically seeing single take plays of a song and you know and, and you're not sitting there going oh my god they're actually playing the song you know so like i guess it's really not out of the realm of like what you see bands do but doing it this many songs boom 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 and have them all come out perfect i don't know it's kind of it's it's a little bit like being a writer and having access to the backspace key but not using it yeah <laughs> yeah that's exactly it's fucked up it's impressive. Yes. Anything else on Slate? No. no. All right, let's take a break. Okay, we are back. Track two, Acuff Rose. Um, you know, we were just talking about 
the way Slate ends kind of quietly. And then I love the way this one picks it back up, uh, giving Max Johnston another chance to earn earn his money here. And according to Discogs, that is Jay Farrar playing the mandolin, which I had no idea until today. He's a man of many talents. That's, I guess. I, uh, I don't know. What 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 do you think of Acuff Rose? I, I mean, I really like it. I, I actually think, and this is going to be a controversial opinion, but... I think the Play Me a Song That Everybody Knows, and I Bet You It Belongs to Acuff Rose, is one of the best Jeff Tweedy couplets around. It is a great one. It's a great one, and it's also a great encapsulation of the difference between the two of them back then. Because, like, you know, we've been raving for 16 episodes about Farrar's great couplets, and it's a lot of times it's tough to tell exactly what he's saying. Like, Tweedy comes out with a great pair of lines. And you know, ex- you know, like it's just it's in plain English. It's like I have a feeling. Let me tell you about my feeling. And I, I don't know that that contrast is interesting to me. And it forces you to actually think about like a cuff rose, yeah. and you know, kind of, which interestingly brings you to a very famous lawsuit involving a cuff rose. Yeah, we're suddenly back to the music industry. It may be the only time that two live crew has been argued before the Supreme Court, but. <laughs> But yet, yet, uh, but uh, apparently, so the actual case, which according to Law 360, has been cited over 500 times <laughs> in uh, other fair use cases, is, and this is actually the name of the case: A. Cuff Rose versus Luther Campbell, aka Luke Skywalker of Two Life. <laughs> they had fun <laughs> typing that one up. Which I assume because it's like it's been argued before the Supreme Court that it it's like in it's in some like official record of oh it's got to be it's fantastic. Um, and I did look, and David Souter is the one who wrote the majority opinion Suter. to to uh, remand it back. Uh, unfortunately, it was settled. But uh, for those for those of you that don't know, it it involves uh, A. Cuffrose suing Two Live Crew for using. Uh, Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. Uh-huh. And so just to throw it back even further, Acuff Rose was the music publishing business that Roy Acuff founded. Um, did Roy Acuff, did he, was he eventually one of the Hee Haw guys? I don't know. I, I think he was, but I'm not sure. I he, hope he was. I'm pretty sure he was. Um, What's but, your stance on Hee Haw? Oh, man. I, I loved it when I was a kid. Um, then, you know, I, when I was... By the time I got old enough to care about music, I hated it. Now I think it'd be fascinating to go back and watch. I don't know, you know, like every show you're gonna get to see Buck Owens and oh, I guess it's Roy Clark, not Roy. Um, but you know, you're gonna get to see like kind of kick-ass musical performances, and then you know you get to see like the spectacle of Johnny Cash making lame jokes. I don't know. I think my weed-smoking days are behind me. <laughs> But like back in the day, I wish I would have had a lot of. <laughs> it would have been great to just like get high and watch, watch Hee Haw. I think that would have been that would have been a good companion. Anyway, yeah. So Egg of Rose. I mean, was, you could you could drink a bunch of cough syrup and watch Hee Haw. <laughs> Not really the same. <laughs> Maybe the same. I don't know. Yeah. So Roy Acuff's music publishing business. Uh, serviced just a lot of classic country and you know 
popular music of the 50s and 60s. So basically this song is hooray for old music, which is kind of a theme Tweedy is going to hit a lot until he stops writing lyrics that make sense in plain English. <laughs> and I think one of the, the cool things about this song is it's kind of an homage to to a lot of the songs that sort of framed their framed their the countryside of their of their musical yeah. worldview. Yeah, the song sounds like it could be an Acuff Rose song. And I, you know, it's funny, like, uh, another thing in those early episodes, there's all this debate about, like, well, is this song country? Is this song country? This one, this is a country song. Like, straight up, no, no two ways about it. And, I, you know, like, I guess you can dig into, like, well, what makes it? Is it the... Is it the fiddle and the mandolin? Um, I don't know, but it's definitely, this is a country band, or a country song. And in 93 then, you know, again, coming off of March, people must have heard this and been like, oh, I guess this is just what they're doing now. Yeah, they, they really kind of, they're sort of laying in wait. Yeah. I don't think there's a drum playing in this song at all. I think, I think anything you can hear is just people wailing on acoustic guitars, like, really percussively. Um, I think they're so far in the country that there's not not a drum going at all. I wonder why that became a thing, like like not having a you know like having a really stripped down drum kit in country music. I don't know. I total pulled out of my ass speculation, but drum kits are a pain in the ass to move, and if you're touring, you know, especially touring in a something less than like a bus, like that shit takes up a lot of space, and like. If you've got just a bass drum and a snare, it's easier to move and easier to set up. Just look at the what is affectionately called like douche country, the like the popular country music now, and yeah. it's like you know Neil Pert back there with like, yeah. you know, seven like seventy drums and a you know, a gong. Yeah, just the ridiculous huge. Well, I mean, even you know you brought up the Stones earlier. I remember when I was younger than we were talking about earlier when i was like deep in like my first rush appreciation phase i remember seeing footage of the stones playing you know like the stones in their prime playing and like seeing how small charlie watts's kit and just thinking like well he can't be a good drummer ah, fuck he he has one tom how can this guy be any good yeah i mean i think uh, there there are people that can pull it off both ways yeah that's yeah. I guess that that's my point. Is like if you know how to play, like you don't need that much because it's it's not about having a lot of shit to hit. It's about hitting what you've got well. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, but like if you're Keith Moon, like you need, you know, like you need a lot of shit to hit. I suppose. Yeah, and then a lot of shit to destroy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, how are you gonna how are you gonna rip apart your drum kit if it's only three pieces? That's an entirely different problem he's solving. It's. You know, like, maybe he just needs extra pieces so there's more stuff to throw. Yeah, I think that's it. Oh, um, yeah, I don't know. Acuff Rose, like, I don't have much else. The only other thing I have to say, I guess, that, that I do want to hit is, so this is where, like, Jeff Tweedy's mature singing voice comes out, takes the lead, and, like, maybe this is just me, like, listening with hindsight, but I think, like, it sounds like, yeah, this guy's not the junior partner anymore. Like, this is... You know, he sounds like a co-lead singer. He can modulate his voice the way Farrar can. He's not trying to sing like Farrar like he was on March. This guy has his own musical identity, and he's he's here. It's kind of the blueprint for AM, really. Like oh, totally. Tweedy's 
Tweedy's work on this album. Like that's kind of what he's going for. Like, yeah. He's and you know you could you can argue about the merits of AM, but it's it, it's a means to an end, and maybe it took him another step to do to do uh, being there, and then Summer Teeth really find his groove. Yeah. But, but his their stretch of uh, being there, Summer Teeth, Mermaid Avenue one, <laughs> uh, and then uh, you know I would say Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, like that's a pretty solid run. Is there one? Am I missing one? Uh, no, I think that was right. And to swerve from that slightly, have you ever heard Mermaid Avenue three? I have not. Don't. <laughs> it, uh... I saw that that existed and I was like, "Oh wow! Why did oh oh that's why I never heard of that." It's it's kind of and I'm gonna I'm gonna modernize this up because when I was a kid, it was the letter you want to write, but I'm gonna do the email you want to write. Like, there's a difference between the email you want to write and the email that you send. <laughs> like, I feel like Mermaid Avenue Three might be the uh, the email you want to write. It. Uh... Or the record company makes you right because, yeah. like, they feel they feel like there's some marginal there's marginal pound of flesh that they can extract. They've from the got carcass. these tapes sitting here. They gotta monetize them. Anyway, yeah. So beginning of mature Tweety here. I say we sink this capitalist system to the darkest depths of hell. <laughs> Sold. Okay, Keith here. Um, we suffered the podcaster's worst nightmare here and lost a chunk of audio somehow. Um, so the conversation is going to pick up with Chad and me in the middle of talking about Husker Du appearing on Joan Rivers. Um, and I know that we got to that from talking about Uncle Tupelo performing the long cut on Conan O'Brien. And that's all I can remember, so yeah, I don't know. I, I'm sure whatever is missing here was great, and uh, apologies to all. Another band that like went major and just fucking splattered against the wall. And have you seen the video of their only network TV appearance? It's on the Joan Rivers show. Oh, fantastic. And like Joan Rivers, it's it's great because I mean they they come out and they kick ass. I can't remember what song they play, but Joan Rivers is there like pretending to be into Husker. Fantastic. It's, it just it rules. Does uh, Mold have the flying V? He does. Excellent. Yeah, and you know he's like and he's like I, he's in that phase where he just looks like just a dude from around Minneapolis. I guess he still does, but now now I don't know. Now he looks like a professor at the U. Back then, he just looked like a guy you'd see at the CC club. I, uh, yeah, that. As far as like look of a band, like Husker Du is Husker Du is my jam. I getting Warehouse and looking at the album photos was like a transformative thing for me. Just be like, oh, oh, they look like this. Yeah, it's just that the mustache. Like, I well, so this is a thing. I, I, this actually kind of ties into Uncle Tupelo too. Like I, so I self-identify as a punk. You know, I like like if I think about like what social niche I fall into, like I think yeah, I'm I'm a punk. I, you know, at this point I'm an old middle-aged punk, but I'm still a punk. Um, you know, I've got punk friends who 
are about the same age who, you know, had mohawks, had like crazy hair. I always, you know, I've basically always been rocking some version of the style I'm rocking now. But I feel like Husker Du and, and the replacements, at least for a while, and Uncle Tupelo are all part of this tradition of like Midwest punk where you just, you know, like you're a punk, but you are just wearing boring everyday shit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I come from the Juggalo community, so <laughs> you know, like not. Yeah, not. <laughs> this is the sound of Chad drinking a Fago. <laughs> I wish that I could say I came from the Juggalo community. But I... There's still time. They're playing at the Caboose this summer. My boss is like weirdly excited about it. So I guess the experience I want to have is like the one that you have where I drive by on my bike and just sort of like... The Juggalos part in front of you? Right, like I'm experiencing the Juggalos as I'm riding through them. That was a beautiful moment. And not... You don't want to be down in the trenches among the Juggalos. You want to be in the Juggalos, but not of the Juggalos. Right. I, You know, like I just... I have this sort of... this this five-year plan to not die in a knife fight and you know like that i feel like that that is uh that is the opposite of that plan a a writer i really like named nathan rabin lived among the juggalos for a year it's battle pain wrote a book about it and like came out of it like super into the juggalos saying like it was this amazingly warm and supportive and misunderstood community uh juggalos have each other's backs so, no it's, knife fights. It's yeah. like the Hunter S. Thompson Hell's Angels. <laughs> exactly. I think that's what he was going for, but then it turned out they were all nice once you, you know, if you meet the Juggalos halfway. <laughs> What's the halfway? Like, what do I have to give up in this transaction? Like uh, Your dignity. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> What's that worth for you? Like, in, in terms of Moon Mist, Fago? Like... <laughs> I don't. Do they come in cases? I don't. I don't know what. I, <laughs> what like what quantities can you buy this stuff in? Train cars. Oh, looping back to the long cut. Two things jump out to me about this song. Like most Jeff Tweedy songs of this era, and like I think there's like a distinct Jeff Tweedy era that goes from this album to Yankee Hotel Foxtrotish. Um, everything he wrote in that era, this song is super easy to play, but fucking shreds um but i mean like this i i can't uh, there are just a handful of chords in this song their song their chords you learn the second someone hands you a guitar um you know you don't need to know anything to play this song but it rules i mean there's there's sort of a sort of a thing like you know like you can have really technical technical guitar skills and make ass music like if you're in like nitro the fastest guitars in the world right fastest guitars in the world and like when like when is the last time you listened to a nitro song <laughs> the last time i had any contact with nitro was when i was in a record store in st cloud minnesota getting laughed at by a clerk as i tried to sell my friend dale's nitro cds <laughs> and they wouldn't take them <laughs> I'll take everything in that stack except the nitro. But, but it's it's sort of that like once you once you realize that I feel like that's a that's sort of a gateway that like yeah. that like you know like a lot of uh, like a lot of Neil Young songs aren't 
aren't super technical aren't super technical, but they're awesome. Yeah. Little Bob Dylan. I think that's a thing a lot of musicians need to learn that never learn. That like you there's a lot of power in simplicity. You know, like emotionally resonant simplicity will just beat the fuck out of cold technique just every day. Like and this is going to be controversial to my co-host, but uh, one of the DJs, local DJs, Brian Oak, uh, said a really, I think, for me, interesting thing about the band Rush, where he said, just because you can play 47 notes doesn't mean you have to play 47 notes. <sighs> he has to say those things to justify his job. He's professionally too cool for Rush. So so what... Just, just so we're clear, that this, in your view, there's like an, there's like an anti-rush establishment. I don't think. Okay, way far afield here, but in Minneapolis, there is a taste-making public radio station, The Current. Um, and I know I put some sizzle on my voice there, but I actually do like The Current. But The Current is this distinct thing with distinct taste parameters, and I do not believe you would be allowed on the air. If you admitted that you liked Rush, unless, except maybe their flagship DJ is Paul Westerberg's sister, Mary Lucia. I think she could get away with saying she liked Rush, and she probably does because she has excellent taste. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else would be shown the door. Yeah, I, you know, like, I I guess I didn't realize you were going to play the Rush victim card. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The last group it's okay to kick around. Hopping back to the long cut. So I got to ask you, did you ever chew? No. Me neither, but I was surrounded by chew culture. So I am 100% convinced, cannot convince me otherwise, that the title of the song is a chew joke. Because I know Jeff Tweedy was pretty into chewing back then. It's really kind of a hard thing to be. Well, I guess it's not a hard thing to be into. They're still selling it. (laughs) Yeah. I had never thought about it in those uh, in that vein before. I, I think I think this is a this is big chew, you know, like Skull Long Cut probably didn't pay them any product placement money, but they should have. So this is a this is also far aside, but when I was in college, and I went to college in Iowa, so this is going to explain a lot of the story. But they would have like uh, chew vendors that would come into the Jesus. into the bar, like, and just hand out like free chew. Oh God! So I don't know what you call the like a chew pusher. No, yeah. Well, like, what do you call the like packaged thing of like all the chew tins together? Like, what is that? I don't know. A case of chew. Yeah, a log of chew. I don't know. A log of chew. But the, like these guys would roll into the roll into the bars with their like skull T-shirts and you know, like just like all the chewing tobacco that a man can carry and like dispense it to these like drunk college kids who are no okay so I mean tell me like put yourself back in your state of mind back then if you were like in a bar you know and like whatever ass 1995 music is playing and then suddenly it stops and it goes like you know this song comes blasting out as they come out handing you chew you would have taken a can i don't think i would have who am i i don't don't have to put myself into that situation like i've lived that situation (laughs) 
And but it, but they like, weren't playing the long cut, is my correct, point. Correct. That is my point. You know, it that's, was like, that's the difference maker. It was like we went from like DMX to uh, <laughs> like, like these yokels handing out free chewing tobacco. If they had played the long cut as they handed you some long cut, all I'm saying. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I feel like that... Uh, it was very popular with a very specific segment of the population there. Yeah. I honestly, I am, like, I always thought chewing was really nasty. But looking back, like, I'm kind of glad that I didn't know at the time how into chew Jeff Tweedy was. Because <laughs> yeah, I feel like there was, like, just enough hero worship going on that I might have been like, oh, no, I gotta, I gotta try this. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's good the internet was in its infancy then. Yes. So setting chew aside. Yeah, so, so when you when you woke up today, how much time did you think how much brain power did you think would be devoted to, to chew? Like just you know, like typical day, you know, you know like I'm gonna think about it for like 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> that 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 line item is usually usually zeroed out on my mental budget. Today, you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's, it's like working out. Maybe you just start thinking about it for like a minute or two mm. per week and then... Well, on the flip side, though, like I have... Part of the reason I'm so hung up on this is like I have been convinced that this song was a chew joke, you know, for a couple of decades. And this is finally my chance to like let it out. Silent all these years until now. So I, I feel like that's kind of an affront to me saying this is my ethos. But, you know, like, it's like, it's, it's like the movie Elf, where, like, I've lived on a throne of lies. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to email them and ask. Well, no, I, I think it works both ways. It's about taking your time to get somewhere and chewing. It, it's both things. Ambiguity. Two great tastes that go great together. Exactly. So I think after two songs with minimal to no drums... This is where you finally get to hear like what Ken Coomer is bringing to the band. You know, it's he plays like the same kind of four on the floor, straightforward rocking thing that Mike Heidorn did. But Coomer's got more polish. Um, you know, he can do more than the off or on off on thing Heidorn does. Like the the break, the drum break he plays at about forty five seconds is just one of my favorite little drum parts in all of music and like i don't think heidorn would do that probably not but i think heidorn is better at playing the style that jay farrar wants to be played i suppose i mean i suppose the historical record bears you out there i'm still reeling from the long cut uh sorry yeah i i mean i think your interpretation about what the song is about is right i just i think like jeff tweedy i just picture jeff tweedy looking at a can of chew and you're like, oh, the long cut. The long cut, yeah. It's it's like reading, like, The Old Man and the Sea and then, you know, like, finding something in, like, Hemingway's house where it's just like a, it's just like a really elaborate dick joke or something. <laughs> like, I'm... No, that's that's Moby Dick. You're thinking Melville. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really long dick joke. <laughs> and a lot of dicks. <laughs> Let's see. So we uh, we talked about like the 
the, the mature Jeff Tweedy singing voice. And in a previous episode, I talked about the quote in his memoir, and I still cannot remember who he is saying said this to him. But there's the thing about you sing well when you sound like you're desperate. And here, like, yes, he sounds desperate, and it sounds great. I think a lot of it for him is just hanging it out there. Yeah. Like, that's like, that's what he does best. That's is, the appeal. Is when he, you know, he, he does it as, like, raw and emotional as possible. And that, yeah. It works for him. That's that's what he brings, and it's and he brings it well. You know, as he is singing really well, Farrar is just fucking shooting lightning out of an electric guitar here over and over. That's my favorite part about Uncle Tupelo, is that, like, if you have Jay Farrar in your band, like, he's a great lyricist and he's a great singer, but he is a monster guitar player yes like and this album is just over and over it's you know like they space them out it's like beat beat oh ferrar's gonna explode beat beat oh ferrar's got another one some supernova shit here we uh way way back i don't remember which episode but we made a joke about john stirat um getting his job by like playing bass exactly the way Jeff Tweedy does and saying, like, this is how the bass is to be played. But for real, that's what's going on in this song. Like, he's just straight up lifting Tweedy's previous style and, and doing it pretty well. And then back when I played bass, like, my style was lifted directly from John Stirat's lift of Jeff Tweedy's style. I mean, can you argue with this methodology, though, at this point? Like, yeah, he survived the country rock purge of Wilco, <laughs> which cost Ken Coomer his job. Jay Bennett yeah. was let go in that transaction. At this point, he must have at least a junior partnership in Wilco Incorporated. I yeah, I mean, he's he good. He probably has some stock. He's the only uh, only other original member. Yeah. He's the Rasputin of Wilco. All right. Okay, so I do have a note to just talk about the, uh, the meaning of the song. I did not mean to... Uh, I think the true thing is a joke and an inspiration, but I think the song itself is about like getting there eventually. Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope you enjoy taking this like <laughs> deeply personal experience for me and just and just like Spit, ripping it apart, spitting it into a little cup, right? And then just like rolling coal over it, but you know, like whatever. That's that's what friends are for. No, but I mean, like like legit, like I I think. In I really, I just wanted to work rolling cola. <laughs> and well done. Well done. But no, I think, you know, this song, um, again, like I had never, I always knew that Acuff Rose was about a publishing label, but I had never, until we were talking tonight, put together, like, so if this song is about eventual success and, you know, the band singing it has just been signed to a major label, like, there's actually, like, this weird little narrative encoded in the first three songs about, yeah. like, hey, we're here, we made it. We're Uncle fucking Tupelo. For this album only. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, I mean, by any measure of musical success, like, they both made it, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, they both ended up being prominent touring musicians they make their living playing music which puts them ahead of 99 percent of the people who own musical instruments in this country i do think it's funny that like so the song is about eventual success and you mentioned that that this is then the song that they play on conan o'brien and 
that's not an eventual success moment there. That's, you know, like, I mean, just considering that that led to nothing for them. Yeah, I mean, as often appearances on the Conan O'Brien show do. Fuck you, that is a star-making machine. <laughs> I will not have you. Yeah, I, I, I definitely... I, I have complicated feelings about Conan O'Brien. Like, I, I do think, like, I'll, I like a lot of his work. When he was a writer on The Simpsons, I thought it was, he was really Those, funny. Yeah. He was, he was a writer during probably the best period of The Simpsons. Yeah, and, like, you'd see his name up front and be like, oh, fuck, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I think sometimes his show maybe wasn't the best, but I mean, I didn't, to be, to be fair to him, like I did not watch it. I mean, I watched it for a little bit and disliked it. So I stopped watching it, but uh, I mean, maybe it improved. Maybe at this point, my opinion of him is basically that Andy Richter seems like a pretty cool guy on Twitter. Yeah. That's as far, that's what I think of Conan O'Brien. It's uh, it would be. It'd be kind of a cool thought experiment to compare and contrast Andy Richter with Ed McMahon in the public eye, because like Ed McMahon's just sort of viewed as a stooge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like Andy Richter's kind of got, uh, did you ever watch the Larry Sanders show? Yeah. Okay. So Hank Kingsley, like, I, I mean, like Hank Kingsley is one of my favorite comedic characters just of all time. And I feel like that is just a giant dagger buried in the back of Ed McMahon, like, like fatally killing him and like desecrating his corpse. One of my favorite Larry Sanders bits is there's an entire episode that, that is based around solely the premise that he has to pee while he's uh, <laughs> while he's on stage. So dumb. And it's all these factors that are conspiring against him not to go pee. Like <laughs> and it's like That's quality television. Yeah. It's it really because Gary Shandling had another show called the Gary Shandling show yeah. on Fox, which I think we can all agree was not a hit. Not my f- yeah. Uh but like the Larry Sanders show just like absolutely redeemed him. Like it was God. It just Rip Torn's character on that is like another of my favorite things on on TV. Yeah, <sighs> it's it, it it's a, it was a really good show. One of the kind of the first HBO shows I think too that was really good. It was on HBO. Yeah, right? yeah. It was kind of HBO's sort of start in this like we're gonna make really good television. Back when they had that and that weird sitcom about football with Delta Burke. Yes, yeah, so peaks and valleys. <laughs> you know, like they had to find their footing. Yeah. It's not all gold. Yeah. They got there eventually. That's right. It took a long cut. Bringing it home. That's right. Good uh, time. You got anything else on the long cut? I do not. I mean this is you know like like Pantheon song, but there's kind of only so much you can say about its Pantheonity. I look forward to getting one of your favorite songs and eviscerating it later. <laughs> Bring it. Right on. Well, thank you for listening. I am uh, I'm Keith Pilly. I am on Twitter at, at Keith Pilly. I'm on Instagram, too. I don't remember what my handle is, but I just re- I realized being very Twitter-centric. And I'm Chad Cook, and my Twitter handle is at R.I.P. Bushwick Bill. <laughs> Did that? Yeah, that Bush. He's dead. Yeah, sad. That is sad. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. That is a great fucking song. I know, right? Although it was born in Jamaica. Now I'm in the U.S. making deals. Would you say he's your favorite ghetto boy? He's the one I can name, yes. Um, Anyway, we would uh, love to hear from you if there's anything about the show you liked or didn't like, or if you think we suck. Um, If you dug the show, 
please tell people about it, especially anybody you know in your life who likes the uh, Tweety or Ferrar verses. Um, also, go to iTunes or Google Play, rate us, leave a review. That legitimately helps the algorithm know to recommend us to other people. And uh, yeah, thanks again. We will talk to you soon with more Anodyne. I will make a point of liking one of the songs so that Chad can shit on it. <laughs> talk to you later.